Just like when we first met someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Our scripture lesson today is from Matthew chapter 6. And I will give you a couple minutes to find it in your pew Bible, which is found on page 960. Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 6, and 16 through 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know that your, what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be a secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then from 16 through 18, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disguise their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Pray once more with me, God and Father. I just pray as we come to this time where we reflect on your word, that you might be near to us, that you, through Jesus, might be teaching us, that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So have you ever stopped and wondered what all of this is about? I don't mean the world or existence or something that abstract. I mean this, church, right? Singing worship songs and praying and crosses on the wall and sermons and all the other stuff that people refer to in our world as religion. A lot of Americans, it seems like these days, are wondering just that. Much has been made of the rise of the religious nuns in America. I don't know if you've read these articles from studies over the last few years about how, for example, the big Pew study in 2014 found that 23% of the population now checked the no religion box when they were filling out um, this study, hence the nuns. But one of the wrong ideas that people can have about that group is that that means that a quarter of the population are atheists. That's not actually the case. A little under a third of that group that checks the box, about 7% of the population would say, yeah, I'm atheist or agnostic. But the other 67% believe in God. 
37% of them pray at least weekly. 34% of them would even say that their spiritual beliefs are somewhat or very important to their lives. What makes that group unique is not that they don't believe in God. What distinguishes them is that they don't believe in all of this. They have no use for the particularity of it, the ritual, the structure. They're spiritual, as many people say today, but not religious. We've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and in it, Jesus gives this vision for what life should look like in the kingdom that he's coming to bring. A constitution of the new creation, we've been calling it. First, in the Beatitudes and the Salt and Light sayings, Jesus gives this picture overall for what Christians in the church should be like. And then he focuses in on the moral outworkings of these teachings in the last few weeks, what it should look like ethically to be a Christian. And up to that point, everything he said fits fine with the views of many of those people who we just mentioned, who are spiritual but not religious. Not that they would agree with everything Jesus has said, mind you, but it sort of makes sense to them. Now, in the verses we read this morning, Jesus shifts his focus from our moral lives to what we might call our religious lives, to giving alms and prayer and fasting. And the activities he talks about here are really shorthand in his world for all the kind of religious activities of the people around him. And so this morning, I want us to spend some time reflecting on what it is that Jesus says about those elements of our lives. You might notice that we skipped over the Lord's Prayer in verses 7 through 15. In case you're wondering, that's because there's a lot of other things to be said there, and we're going to look at it next week. But what our reading for this morning does um, is teaches us a basic framework for how Jesus views religious activity. And so that's what I'd like us to ask with Jesus. What is all of this religious stuff for? And Jesus really answers in two ways, at two levels. On one level, he wants to teach us about bad religion, to show us what religious activity shouldn't be. And we need that up front because oftentimes when people reject sort of the religious parts of life, what they're actually rejecting are the sorts of religion that Jesus condemns. And we do not, in the name of defending religion, want to defend those sorts of things. But behind that, Jesus also has this view of what religion should be, of what we should aspire to see in our religious lives. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, bad religion, what Jesus says religion shouldn't be. Jesus throughout the Gospels is this critic of a certain sort of religion that's modeled by the scribes and Pharisees. He's repeatedly taken aim at them in the Sermon on the Mount, and these verses really critique them as well. But what is Jesus' issue with the scribes and Pharisees? What's wrong in his view with how they approach it? Really, there's kind of three different parts of it. First, Jesus critiques the way they practice religion in order to be seen. Bad religion seeks to be seen. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So what's the problem for Jesus? It isn't practicing righteousness in that verse, right? It isn't the righteous activities themselves that are somewhere how the problem, the praying and fasting and giving of alms. It isn't people practicing them um, publicly, although they're getting into dangerous territory, as Jesus' examples are going to show. The problem for Jesus is practicing your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. It is practicing religion in order for people around you to see how religious you are. 
Jesus gives these pictures to show what he's talking about. First, in verse 2, he says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. And this might actually have happened. Some commentators think that maybe rich people in Jesus' day would have like a trumpeter blow a horn to announce to the poor people to come and get the alms that he was going to hand out. Or it might just be satire, right? A picture of the way people gave as if they had a herald standing in front of him with, you know, with this bugle that he's making sure that everybody's watching and seeing what he's doing. But either way, you've got the image, Right? It's picturing what we refer to as tooting your own horn. You're being generous and making absolutely sure everyone knows how generous you're being. Likewise with prayer in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I remember um, once being at a restaurant on a Sunday and seeing this family across the restaurant sitting down, and um, the, 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 the father, as their meal came, literally, he stood up in his suit, and he looked around the entire restaurant, and then he very loudly said, let's pray, and then he led his family in this extremely ornate prayer full of these and thous, which I know, because even though I was on the other side of the restaurant, I could clearly hear what he was praying, And then he looked around again to make sure everybody was looking at him and said, Amen, and sat back down. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that guy. (laughs) And in verse 16, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Which is a little more subtle. They aren't blowing any trumpets, but it means that they're fasting, and whenever people are around, they kind of screw up their faces and look just as miserable as they can, like, like a kid trying to get out of school. And, and, and they're doing it, just waiting, just hoping for someone to ask, hey man, are you okay? So they can reply, oh, I'm fine, I'm just fasting right now, not that I was going to say anything. So bad religion seeks to be seen. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Now, there's questions that people naturally have about the particulars of those things. Does that mean you can never pray in public, for example? Does that mean that if someone finds out that you gave to an organization, Jesus doesn't like it anymore? And the answers to those questions are probably not. There is a lot of nuance, of course, that needs to be brought to how we apply those commands. But like most things in the Bible, we can't let that nuance distract us from all of the times that we are violating this command. Because it can be subtle. We don't hire some trumpeter from the high school band to announce when we're putting money in the offering plate, but that doesn't mean that we're more holy than the people Jesus is describing, just maybe more cunning. I mean, here's something that I've noticed. There are times when I do something kind for someone, and in that moment, I'm sure that I'm just being selfless and generous, but they go away, and nobody knows about that, And it kind of bugs me. And I'm sitting there kind of imagining that person telling their friends about what a wonderful person I am because of the thing I did for them. And I maybe let it slip in conversations. Or I talk about how tired I am, hoping, waiting for someone to ask why. We can all be guilty of that kind of thing. I mean, think about the times that we lead people in prayer. We might not stand in street corners, But don't we often choose our words based not just on what's true and helpful, but on what's impressive or shows us to be spiritual? 
Think about all the times we talk about people that aren't very religious or church-going, and the unspoken tone in our conversation is, unlike really good Christian people like me, our desire for good deeds to be seen by people can be sneaky and incredibly hard to kill in our hearts. So Jesus is saying, don't do that, that religion is wrong if it's meant to be seen. But why is it wrong? He really, I think, has two reasons that he's getting at here. The first is because it is trying to make something of ourselves. The bad religion is about being seen as something. Look at verse 2 again. Jesus says about those people who toot their own horn, Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. He says the same thing in verse 5 and 16. What does Jesus mean? He's saying that the reward these people get is the recognition of other human beings. That that's what they're after. Their goal is to show off how religious they are, and they have succeeded at that, but that is all that they're going to get. The problem with that kind of seeking to be seen as something is that it makes religion about us. When I wave the $100 bill in the air before I hand it to a homeless guy, I am not thinking about this human being who's hurting and needs my help. I'm thinking about myself. The person that I'm loving is me. The needy person is just an excuse to show how generous I am. Likewise with prayer and fasting. I'm taking these things that should be about others and ultimately about God and twisting them to make them be about myself. And Jesus is saying that is not okay. It can happen in all kinds of ways with us. Here's one I found myself just reflecting on this week. A lot of us have kids, and we, a lot of us decide that we need to give our kids kind of a dose of religion, right? So that we can get them signed up for church programs in order to make them good, moral people. And that can sound innocent. It can actually sound really good, right? I want my kids to be, I don't want them to be bad, immoral people. Um, It's good for them to be involved in church. But when I do it for those reasons, there's a real sense that I'm doing exactly what Jesus is warning against here. That I'm teaching my kids to be religious, to go to church and pray and give, because it is good for them. Not because it's right or good for the world, We're teaching them that religion is meant to sort of serve them and their place in society rather than that they are meant to serve God. And there are all kinds of ways that I can do this, that all of us can. I mean, I feel like you see it in the world, right? Every time a politician trots out their religion to get votes, every time a public figure makes a show of their generosity in order to get recognition, every time any of us uses our piety as a way of making us look or feel better than other people, We are walking into dangerous territory. We're running the risk of taking what belongs to God and acting as if it belongs to us. God is not one to share his glory. So bad religion is bad because it seeks to be seen as something. But more than that, it is also bad because it seeks to be seen as something you're not. It seeks to be seen as something you're not. So Jesus, in each of these stories, refers to the people he is talking about as hypocrites. And interestingly, that's not just an English translation. This text and others in the New Testament are where we get the modern word hypocrisy. 
Jesus uses this Greek word, hypokrites, and I almost never quote Greeks in the sermons, but he uses this Greek word, and in his day, it just means actor, like in a play or on a stage. And it's Jesus who actually, as near as we can tell, first uses it metaphorically to mean someone who claims a moral standard that he doesn't actually keep. And so it's meant to give us this vivid picture. Jesus is saying, don't be like people who live their lives like they're on stage, always pretending to play a part that isn't really true of them. The root problem for the Pharisees, Jesus says, is that they are acting religious in public to be seen by others, but it's not really true of their hearts. In Matthew 23, he pictures them as whitewashed tombs, pretty to look at on the outside but inside full of bones and rotting things. They think that religion is about how you appear, but for Jesus it's meant to be about how you truly are. That's a challenge for all of us. One of the deepest temptations that we have is to pretend like we're in one place spiritually when really we're not there at all. It is to spout the truths of Christianity with our mouths when, when living in denial of them in our lives. It is to say that we're doing just great to brothers and sisters when actually our hearts are breaking. We are all, to some extent, hypocrites in the way that Jesus means it. I'm a hypocrite. There are dark things in my heart that I want to hide from everybody. There are, so I pretend like there aren't, that I'm spiritual and holy and what actually... I'm shot through with anger and fear and pride. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't be an actor playing a part that isn't really you. Take off the costume and the makeup and come down off the stage and be where you really are. That doesn't mean that you tell everyone everything. Trust is a heavy burden and relationships need to be strong enough to bear it. And it doesn't mean that it is easy or it's going to happen right away. Truthfully, most of us have only really even begun to recognize and name our sin, and so it's going to be an ongoing process. And it doesn't mean that we don't seek to be more than we are, that we don't aspire towards holiness and seek to pursue it, but sin gets power when it's kept secret. By naming it and confronting it and sharing it, it actually loses some of its power over us. So Jesus is saying that the thing that will make us truly Christian is not to act more religious than we are. It is instead to be ourselves with all the warts and flaws and shadows that that includes and then to find in religion a means of fighting that darkness. So this is what Jesus condemns. Approaches to religion that are external, that are all about being seen and serving ourselves. And I know in the eyes of many people that that is basically just religion. But that's not the case for Jesus. As much as he condemns the ways the scribes and Pharisees lived out their faith, he isn't throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In fact, while Jesus has no use for hypocritical religion, he sees religious activities as essential. Good religion is essential. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, When you give to the needy, and then warns us how not to do it. But what's striking is the when. It isn't an if. Or on the off chance that you might, Jesus assumes that we're going to be doing this. The same thing goes for verse 5, when you pray, and verse 16, when you fast. Jesus assumes that his followers will be doing these activities. Indeed, it seems almost to go without saying for him, which should indicate to us that it's important. 
Of course, Jesus is saying you're going to do these things. It's also noteworthy how he refers to them. In verse 1, his warning is not to practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Your righteousness. The same word he uses in 5.20, your righteousness should surpass the Pharisees. Or in 5.6, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus is treating fasting and praying and giving and this religious stuff the same way he treats not murdering people or getting angry. They belong in the same category for him. The way we modern Americans kind of divide the world into moral activities and religious ones is just foreign to Jesus. I've been using that distinction so far because it makes sense to us and it does kind of reflect a shift in his teaching. But the fact is that Jesus sees fasting and tithing as part of your moral life and he sees not committing adultery and being truthful as part of your religious life. He doesn't have a category for a sort of spirituality that isn't religious. Why? When we talk about being spiritual in our world as opposed to religious, what we usually mean is that we're talking about something primarily having to do with our experience of the world rather than with something out there, with God. We might acknowledge that God is out there somewhere, but we're thinking about being spiritual people, about feeling spiritually fulfilled. But for Jesus, spirituality is always God-focused. It is about living life in relationship with God as our Father and in living life in obedience to God as our Lord. This is meant to affect our moral lives, like Jesus talked about in chapter 5, but it's also meant to shape our religious lives. God calls us to live out our faith through a number of religious activities. So good religion is necessary. Let me try to explain that with an image to help. Here is how scripture views the world, all right? That is me, and I am in this set of relationships. I'm in relationship with other people. I'm called to love and build them up. And I'm in relationship with the world as creation as a whole, and I am meant to steward and use it appropriately with thanksgiving. And I'm in relationship with God. That God made me, and I'm meant to worship him and relate to him as my father. So scripture sees sin then as all of those relationships being broken. That my relationship with others is broken. I'm selfish. I use them and abuse them rather than loving and building them up. My relationship with creation is broken. I use it and abuse it. And my relationship with God is broken. I now relate to him with guilt and shame and rebellion rather than as my maker and father. And so sin in Scripture breaks all of those relationships, and righteousness for Jesus means seeking healing in all of those relationships. So in Christianity, all of them matter. They're all meant to be restored. You can't draw lines around parts of life. On the one hand, you can't think you're righteous because you're seeking to be restored in your relationship with God if it doesn't make any difference in the world, right? That would be to fail to appreciate that biblical view of sin. But at the same time, you can't think you're working towards biblical righteousness without seeing that relationship with God healed as well. That it all belongs together. That all of it is sin and all of it is something that Jesus is challenging. So the distinction we make between religious things and secular moral things just doesn't fit with the way Jesus views the world. So good religion, just like love and obedience, is essential to how Jesus wants us to live out Christianity. But to be good religion, it has to reject that bad religion's selfish desire to be about us. Good religion is not about serving ourselves. Good religion is about God. Good religion is about God. 
Jesus says this in verse 4 about why we should keep our giving secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He says exactly the same thing in verse 6 about prayer and verse 18 about fasting. If bad religion is bad because it is done before men to be seen, then good religion is good when it is done before God for him. I know that idea of rewards can raise some questions, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But first, just reflect on why we need to maintain that Godward focus in our religion. What are activities like giving and praying and fasting for? I think our instinct is to view them as acts of donation. They are things we are giving to God. That we're supposed to give some of our money to God, some of our time, maybe even some things that we like occasionally, that they're donations, right? But the thing is, that's not how Scripture views those duties at all. Take fasting. In Isaiah 58, the prophet records this imagined discussion between Israel and God. And Israel's under judgment, and they're angry at God because they say, God, look at all these fasts we're doing. Don't you owe us? Aren't you pleased with that? Don't you appreciate our donations to your cause? But here's how Isaiah records the Lord's response. He says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God's issue in these verses is that Israel had misunderstood the point of fasting, the point of their religion. It is not meant to be a donation that pays off God or earns something from him. Rather, religious activities are meant to be formation. They're meant to shape us. A good religion is meant to instill righteous action in our lives. So here's how scripture actually views it. You remember that picture, the one about the broken relationships? That's true, but it's actually even more complicated than that. So think about us in the garden with peace and harmony and all those relationships. What actually happened first is that we rebelled against God. Adam and Eve disobeyed him, broke their relationship with him, sought to replace him, and that relationship was broken first, and it led to all of the other broken relationships. That somehow without God in his proper place, we can't selflessly love people. We need to use them instead to worship our new God, which is ourselves. Without God in his proper place, we can't appropriately enjoy the world. Instead, we twist it to serve our appetites. That it is our broken relationship with God that ends up breaking everything else. And so what religion is meant to do is to be something that heals our relationship with God and teaches us to view the world as God, with God at its head Praying is a chance to talk to our Heavenly Father. That that giving is not setting aside some percentage that belongs to God, but training us to break the power of money and possessions on our lives. That fasting is meant to deliver us from the control of our appetites, teach us discipline and freedom, all of which ties back into that idea of rewards. I think the reason we can get uncomfortable with them is that we have the wrong picture of what kinds of rewards we're talking about. We've all heard those teachers on TV, right? The ones who tell you that if you give your money to the poor, by which they usually mean their poor, poor ministry, that you're going to somehow have dollar bills rain down from the sky to repay you. Is that what Jesus is promising? Not at all. 
In fact, that's exactly what he's challenging. The problem for the Pharisees is that they're seeking the wrong kind of reward. That what they want is recognition and fame and prosperity in their religion. And while they might earn some of that in this life from it, Jesus is saying that that's not the kind of reward that God gives. God isn't in the business of giving those rewards. So what are the rewards that Jesus is speaking of? C.S. Lewis has this great quote in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. There are rewards that do not sully motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love of exercise less disinterested because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by its very nature, seeks to enjoy its object. What Lewis is saying is that the reward for prayer isn't money or fame or riches. That's like marrying somebody for money or fame or riches. That's ugly and mercenary. But there is a reward for marriage. It's being married to that person. And there's a reward for prayer. And it is prayer. It's experiencing communion with God. The reward for fasting is discipline and growing closer to God. The reward for giving is the joy of generosity and knowing that God shares it with you. Good religion is good not just because it seeks God. It's good Because through it, God is actually being found. All of this clues us into something profound about the reality of the Christian life. When we separate out our morality and our religion, both of them end up suffering. We adopt a try-harder approach to our morality that leaves us feeling discouraged and defeated. Where do the strength and the resources and the change of heart come from that we need to defeat these stubborn sins. And at the same time, we adopted just-because approach to religion. We feel like it's some pointless duty that we have to perform to keep God happy. We struggle to worship and pray and give because we don't see the point. But both of these problems disappear when we recognize the unity of our relationship with God and the rest of our lives. That spending time with God is what enables us to be obedient people. It is the grease on the axles and the fuel in the tank of our lives. That through prayer and fasting and all those other religious activities, we are slowly but surely formed into the sorts of people that God calls us to be. At the same time, it also helps those activities make sense. They have a point to grow closer with God and so to see him made visible in the rest of our lives. That I am actually a better parent or spouse when I pray for my wife and kids. I am a less greedy person when I discipline myself to give. Which I suppose brings us back to that big question. What is all of this for? Why does the religious stuff matter? The answer for Jesus is that it is somehow mysteriously the first step in restoring creation. That we're seeking in our religious lives to find healing in our relationship with God the first relationship to be broken, the one whose breaking broke everything else. And we're seeking to see that restored in the hopes that it will begin the process of all things being made new. Let me put it another way as we close. 
Think about the things that we are doing this morning. We are listening to God as he speaks to us in his word. We are speaking to him in prayer. We are confessing our sins to him and hearing the promise of the gospel. We're partaking of Jesus Christ at the table and meeting him there. We are singing songs of praise, just like the heavenly host. And we're joining our voices as we do in a way that calls us to see our divisions in relationship healed. Our hope should be that what we do here is a roadmap and an exercise for every moment of our lives. That we are to hear and listen, to confess and partake of Christ, to live together in worship and unity every moment of every day. That this is to be the formation for us, forming us into the creatures that we should be out there. So let's lean into that calling today and every day that we might more and more be conformed to our Maker and Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that you would be near to us, that we might see our relationship with you ever more healed, that we might draw close to you, and so as you love us, that we might learn love to show to the world. As you support us, that we might walk into the world in faith. That as you meet with us, we might go from this place changed. Pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we come to this time in our service where we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's confess our faith in Jesus Christ using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of... So we prepare to come to the table. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's a real sense in which a substantial part of who I am is the sum total of all of the different people that I have spent time with in my life. Maybe not the whole part, right? Lots of people like to debate those things, but there's a real sense in which the people that I have met with change and shape me. That's true in the story of my whole life. It's true in a day-to-day level, right? If I um, get a chance to go have lunch with somebody, I might well come away from that place with my heart lifted or encouraged, or in another situation, I might go away feeling heavy or sad. We often struggle to understand what happens at the Lord's table. When Jesus takes the, the bread and the wine and gives this promise that somehow this is my body and this is my blood and I am with you. And on the one hand... What we don't believe is that the the Lord's table is somehow magic, right? That there's sort of this hand wave and you sort of magically imbibe Jesus' actual blood in a way that sort of magically makes you righteous. But on the other hand, 
we don't believe that it is simply about our kind of memories, that it's just a chance for us to think really hard about Jesus and play pretend that he's meeting us at the table. The best way to understand Jesus' promise that he is present with us at the table is to think about that table where he first sat down with his disciples. How was he present with them? He was present with them, seated at the table with them, giving them the bread and the wine. One of the biblical pictures that I think is most compelling of the table is to picture what's happening as we come here through the Holy Spirit uniting us with Christ as a chance for that sort of meeting with the Lord. That Jesus is present in the table as he, seated in heaven, meets with us here on earth as the Holy Spirit lifts our hearts to meet with him. And just like all of those other meetings in our lives, I don't think you can help but meet with Jesus Christ as he gives himself to you at the table and not be changed. So this is our opportunity to come to the Lord's table where the Lord sits as our host and to meet with him there. I'd invite the elders to come forward as we prepare to administer the elements. I'll also just let you know we'll pass them out and hold them onto them. We'll partake of all of them together after the bread has been distributed and then after the wine has been distributed. If you're with us here, and all of this seems still kind of alien to you, and you haven't um, professed your belief in Christ, you haven't trusted in him, we would invite you not to participate here at the table. Not because we're not glad that you're here, because we are. Not because we're not excited to enter into relationship and fellowship with you. But simply because what you would be doing here is acting out a set of things with your hands that would not be true of your heart. We don't want to put you in that place of hypocrisy. But if you do belong to Jesus Christ, if he is yours, then this is your chance to come and feast with him. And so come with joy in your heart and partake. Let's give thanks for the table. Our God and Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that you took the first step in knitting up that broken relationship, in coming as a man, in suffering and dying and rising again, that we might have new life and new humanity in you, and that through the body and blood of Jesus, we might begin to see all of creation restored. Pray that you would meet with us now. Knit us up. Thank you for your love. Amen. As I was given it, so I give it to you. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me.